Europe took a sleeping pill in 1989 and needs to wake up to face the challenge of Russian authoritarianism? Does it have the courage to do so? Pascal Bruckner, one of France's most influential philosophers, came to Kyiv in December 2023 and participated in a public discussion at PEN Ukraine on December the 7th. This episode is the recording of this conversation. You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a multilingual website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, chief editor of Ukraine World and president of PEN Ukraine. This episode is a part of our series Thinking in Dark Times. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal.ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Good afternoon, colleagues. We will start our conversation today in Pan-Ukraine. This is a joint event by Pan-Ukraine and Ukraine World. And uh, I'm very happy that we keep on engaging and inviting top world intellectuals. And today we have Pascal Bruckner, who is one of the most famous French philosophers and uh, a big supporter of Ukraine and author of many books. Some of them are translated into Ukrainian, for example, La Tyrannie de la Pénitence, Tyrannia Kayatia, or Le Paradox Amoureux, uh, The Love Paradox. And uh, Pascal is also a novelist, so he is a remarkable combination of conceptual thinking and uh, storytelling. So I really advise to you to read his novels, like the La, L'Amour du Prochain, uh, The Love of the Close One, and then the, the famous uh, novel Hirki uh, Misset, uh, Bitter Moon. Comment ça, tu dis en français, vous dites? Voilà, Lune de Fiel. So, uh, please welcome Pascal here, please. The uh, the unpleasant thing is that Pascal is a little bit ill, so uh, we were thinking this morning whether to cancel the event because uh, there is he has a fever. So we are grateful so much that he decided not to cancel the event. Uh, thank you so much. But we will not have too much time not to make uh, it kind of a, a too difficult. So we have about one hour. And uh, I will make a conversation with Pascal for about 30 minutes, and then uh, I give the floor for a conversation with, uh, with you for about 30 minutes. So my first question would be that you are coming to Ukraine. It's not the first time that you come since the full-scale invasion. Why is it important for a French philosopher like you not to stay in Quartier Latin, but to, but really to go to um, a country which is... Uh, which is subject, which is target for of Russian very cruel war. So I've always traveled a lot in the eastern country, even during the communist period. I went to USSR, to Russia, I went to Czechoslovakia. I was carrying messages for dissidents. I think I was just a puppet between the, 
the hands of the uh, KGB because they knew exactly what I had in my in my uh, pocket. But anyway, I've always had uh, strong ties with the dissidents of Eastern Europe. I met uh, Daniel Siniawski, and I was in, also know his son in in, in Paris, Yegor Gran, which maybe you have met. And um, so I think for me, it's it's a continuation of uh, an, an anti-totalitarian fight of um, against Russia, which after 15 years of pseudo-democracy, led by the alcoholic Boris Yeltsin, and the settlements of accounts with Kalashnikov of the oligarchs, now has fallen into uh, autocracy for the last 20 years. And um, strangely, in France, the anti-Putin have been lonely for a very long time, for about 20 years, and even today, many people uh, find a lot of charms to put in. They say, yes, he's a little rough, but uh, you know, this is the kind of man we need in France. And uh, I think it's a total mistake of analysis. And um, the day uh, when Ukraine was uh, invaded, in February 24th, I was uh, flabbergasted, I was uh, struck. I was in Switzerland with my wife, and I couldn't believe my eyes. And of course, I thought he would, uh, Putin would make it because you always have to predict the worst to have a view of the future. But uh, I hope that was mistaken. And uh, so for me, it's, uh, it's a good reason to come here and to support Ukraine in France and uh, to support Ukraine, on, especially on television, because you know writing articles is good, but nobody reads articles except the convinced one. And so on TV, you can touch a lot of people. And that's why I try, I will try after, uh, this trip to go on, on television. I already have a commitment for next Saturday, eight days after my return. So we, we are thinking a lot about the Western world here. Uh, and sometimes we see, when we talk about the West, sometimes we hear people in the West that are telling us that the West doesn't exist anymore. And people in the West are using a concept like, what has sometimes, some time ago, has been the West? Do you think? Do you still think that the West exists? Oh yes, of course. It, it, it mainly exists through the hatred of its enemies. You know why? How can you understand that Russia, Iran, Turkey? Turkey, it's it's a complicated game. China, um, uh, most of uh, Arab regimes hate hate the, the West so much. It's well because we represent something absolutely new in the history of civilization. A combination of power and conscience of uh, the individual democratic right and um, economic prosperity. And uh, those um, individual rights are unbearable for autocratic regime or theocratic regime. And that is why, um, of course, there is a combination, an alliance between Putin and, um, and Khamenei, the, the head of uh, the Islamic State, and all the terrorist group which uh, uh, Moscow supports, attacks, supports, attacks, because as you know, Putin is the king of the cynicals. But yes, I, I, I don't think the West has, has lost any uh, um, relevance. And uh, you know, in the West, we, we have practiced for so many years the self-repentance self-payments that now we even deny to ourselves to exist. 
No, you do not exist. We do not exist. We're just a shadow on the wall. We are a cloud in the sky. But that's absurd. And at the same time, uh, people try to convey this uh, lazy concept of global south. But global south does not exist with nothing like global south. Take, for instance, what happens in Middle East. Uh, India, Japan, Singapore, many African states, many South American states are supporting Israel. The worst enemy of uh, New Delhi is Beijing. So uh, Global South is a, a try, is a kind of resurrection of the old concept of the Third World, which, which has been very uh, active during the 50s, 60s, 70s. And it's a way to say uh, there are two words, the West and the Orient, they and us. And it's, of course, you find a reminiscence of the theory of Huntington, uh, the West and the rest. But uh, even if Huntington was quite insightful about, this, um, about his view of the world, I think the rest, a part of the rest, is signing along the West. And you write a lot about this in your book, uh, in your books, uh, Sanglot de, de l'Amblanc, Tears of the White Man, and in the Tyranny de la Penitence, the, the Tyranny of Guilt that um, our public, Ukrainian public, knows or will read after, after our discussion. And you actually say this, this the tyranny of penitence is, uh, the tyranny of guilt is the self-masochism of the Western world upon itself. And it really struck me sometimes when I am in Western Europe and I say, look, Europe is about the reduction of the space of, for violence. And people look at me like a crazy man because they say, okay, you forgot about Nazism, you forgot about colonialism. I say, no, I didn't forget about it. But I think that European civilization is learning on its crimes and is learning on its mistakes. It's not ideal, but, uh, but um, the way that itself is criticizing itself, it gives the language to others to criticize itself, and it's very interesting and very paradoxical and very conflictual. And I do think that the problem of European and American worlds is that, that there is a loss of faith in themselves, what you are saying. Uh, do you think, uh, is it correct diagnosis? Uh, yes, you're totally right. And um, uh, yes, we, we, you know, it's like, it's as if Europe say, I'm remorseful, I'm remorseful, who has a crime which I could repent of? And uh, Europe is ready to uh, take on its shoulders all the problems of the planet, including, of course, the global warming, which is, of course, our fault. Everything is our fault. And not later than this morning in Brussels, maybe you have seen that in the news, um, um, political commissaire for equality, she's from Malta, said that Europe has invented racism, colonialism, fascism, and so, and so and so, and that it should repent forever of these evils. So let's, um, let's uh, see things clearly. Uh, how many European countries have been colonialist? Eight out of 27. France, England, Germany, Denmark, uh, Spain, uh, Italy, Portugal, and a few of those which I forgot, but it's... The Netherlands, Belgium. Our oh, Netherlands, Belgium, yes. And, and Denmark, but Denmark invaded uh, uh, Greenland. And uh, so it's about eight, eight countries. And we are 27. And the rest of Europe has been colonized. That's exactly, you know, we are totally hemiplegic. We forget 
Uh, we don't know his story, in fact. We don't care about his story. We reduce it to a slogan. And uh, take Eastern Europe. It's been colonized by the Ottomans, by the Russians, by the Austrians, by the Swedes, uh, by the Poles also. You have been uh, colonized by the Poles. And, um, and uh, it's been colonized until 1989. And, of course, this war in Ukraine is a colonial war of an ex-master who want to retrieve his own possessions. So uh, this uh, the kind of view lacks complexity and is so simplistic that uh, you want to, to shrug your shoulders, but you have to explain very plainly and very simply without any anger that, um, of course, we have been colonialists, of course, we have been uh, slave owners, but uh, let's not forget the three slave uh, trade inside Africa. My, my wife is from Africa, so she knows a little bit about that. Uh, oriental uh, slavery, which is still going on nowadays in, in Libya, in some parts of Saudi Arabia, in, in Mauritania. It has been abolished uh, so few years ago that it keeps uh, going on. And of course, the, uh, the transatlantic uh, slave uh, trade. But um, it seems that uh, as we are Westerners, we, are, we have the duty to repent and the other uh, don't have to regret anything because they're not us. Whoever is not us is innocent, whoever is Western is guilty. And so of course we, we try to balance the, the charge of the guilt between Europe and the United States. So for many years, uh, the United States have carried uh, the heaviest weight and, uh, but now, with uh, the rise of wokeism, with the rise of wokeism on the campuses, guilt has come to, to the left of the Democratic Party with all these um, terrible phenomena that we, we see nowadays. So, yes, uh, we have to admit that we've made horrible things, but uh, we have also invented the remedies to cure them. And these remedies, as you said before, self-examination, self-criticism, and the first text uh, criticizing uh, colonialism and slavery have been written by, uh, uh, I think it's a Franciscan or a Dominican, uh, Bartolome de las Casas in Mexico, saying that it was horrible to treat the Indians like animals. And this is the first writing about uh, the shame of slavery. You don't have such phenomenon in Africa or in the, in the Arab world. And it's very important. Human rights were born in Europe and only in Europe, even if you have an, a Hindu emperor called Ashoka, who for centuries before Christ invented something like the human rights, but they were never applied. And I think this is self-contradiction of the European civilization. is something that is inaccessible for its enemies, like enemies like Russia. So this kind of a schizophrenia, which is which is in fact a good thing, because you have a you have a a killer and and a person and a savior in the same person or in the same civilization. This bipolarity, in a sense. While we were recently talking to our friends and there was a joke that uh, a symbol of Russia should be not a polar bear, but a bipolar bear. Oh. 
Excellent, yes. Uh, yeah. But this this self-contradiction is a, is a very important um, important thing in the European civilization. And for example, we see that on Russians because Russians do not have in their in their culture this culture of repentance. So they they commit crime. They erase the memory of the crime, they erase the memory of the victims, and they commit another crime and another crime. And therefore, we see that in America you have huge manifestations against Vietnam War, against Iraq War, against Afghanistan War, and you, ha you see no manifestations in Russia against Afghanistan War or against uh, the invasion of Georgia, invasion of Ukraine. What do you think? Yes, in, 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 I think in 1921, Sigmund Freud made an introduction to... Uh, a novel by Dostoevsky, I don't remember which one, maybe the Karamazov Brothers, and Freud says it's a very strange way to understand confession in uh, the orthodox world, because you commit a crime, you, you go and you repent before with a priest, and then you commit another one again, because you know you will be excused a little after. And those things happen in the Catholic world also, I have to say. But I think it's a very good image, and one of the tragedies of Russia, is that is it has been alongside with America the, the victor of, the, of World War II. And so there was no Nuremberg for communism. There was no uh, judgment for the crimes of Stalin, uh, which now allows uh, Putin to uh, praise uh, the little uh, father of the people and to uh, prohibit whoever criticizes Stalin. So um, in all the mental activities, uh, Russia has just forgotten uh, um, one, which is essential, it's an inner glaze into your own conscience. You know, we have been taught, this is the basis of uh, Greek philosophy and Christian uh, religion, we have been taught from the childhood to look into our own conscience. What did you do wrong today? What did you do good? But for the Russians, they do only good because they are the elect people. They've been, they are the chosen one. And uh, nothing bad can happen in Russia. And if it's bad, it's because it's the fault of the Americans, of the bad capitalism, or the fault of the Ukrainians, or the Poles, or the ex-colonies. We, we, we don't want to recognize all the benefits they withdrew from uh, Russian occupation. To continue this topic, uh, but to shift it a little bit, um, my my teacher in, in France, uh, so the director of my French uh, dissertation, French, uh, French thesis, Francois Azouvi, who um, I met him recently, one year ago, I think, and he told me he's working on a book, how the memory and how the conscience, or European conscience, also about the wars, about the Second World War in particular, shifted from the idea of a hero to the idea of the victim. And uh, uh, so we, instead of praising the heroism, we're rather mourning the victims. And on the one hand, it's very good, and I think uh, the way how Ukrainians also shifted the memory of the Second World War following the European examples, talking more about the victims of the Second World War rather than this uh, Red Army, you know, uh, cult of, 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 of Red Army, which was in the Soviet Union. On the one hand, it's good, but on the other hand, it's, it's problematic. We see that in, in Ukraine right now, because, of course, during the war, uh, it's not only about victims, because there are, sh there, are sh there are people that should fight. You can call them heroes, you call them warriors, you call them whatever, but if you don't people who are fighting, 
you just lose the war. So my question is, uh, is this shift in Europe's 20th century from the idea of a hero, which is, is the basis of the European idea, European values, starting from Achilles to, I don't know, to the idea of uh, medieval knights. So you, you have this warrior image of the warrior at the very bottom of the very basis of the European civilization. And now it's shifting towards the idea of victims and, and calling Europe itself a kind of a, a bad guy and then you should repent with the victims. On the one hand it's good, but on the other hand it, it leads you to a kind of an impuissance, leads, leads you to a lack of power. What do you think? Well, let's see. You just summarize my next text, which I gave uh, to my publisher last Monday. I should be a co-author, no? Yes, yes, yes. Of course, I will add your name. And um, yes, that's exactly the big shift of World War II. World War II. And I think, I think it's mainly due to the eruption of the Holocaust in the common mind. And uh, so everyone identified himself with the Jews. And as uh, usual, uh, as soon as a deported Jew became a hero, everyone said, no, I'm the hero. I want to kick them off from this place. So nowadays, everybody wants to take the place of the Jews, Palestinian, m Muslims, indigenous people, uh, Afro-American people, like women, children. And uh, because this, uh, this, this place of the victim is a dearest one, if you can prove that you are a victim, that you have been deprived of a fundamental right, uh, then you have all the rights. Uh, you don't have any more duties. You have all the rights. The world is yours, and you cash the debts that the others owe you. Uh, you know, you're totally un un untouchable. And that's exactly what is happening uh, nowadays uh, in France, but also in other countries like, uh, like America. And America has... Uh, push the victim um, culture very far, especially with the black community, with the LGBT community. And uh, uh, as I say, you can be a victim from father to son, from mother to daughter. It's a kind of hereditary title. Um, exactly like the refugees in, in, in the Middle East are refugees from uh, grandfather to, to grandson. And uh, I don't think this is very sound, and doesn't make a strong country anyway. And just if you may allow me a small um, remark, in, after November 13th, 2015, after the bomb attacks in uh, Bataclan and in uh, the streets of uh, Paris, the government uh, proposed to, um, to rise the victims uh, at the... At the um, rank of heroes. So they, he, he proposed to offer them the Legion d'honneur. I don't know if you have something like this in, in, in Ukraine, but I guess you have one, which is the highest rank of someone who has accomplished an act of courage. And um, there were strong protests because they say, being a victim, of course, is very is tragic, but it means that you're passive. A hero is active. He goes to save people. He, he fights for other people's lives. And, and so finally, the government changed his mind and didn't uh, uh, take this measure. But you know, it's, it's to prove that uh, vi to victimize oneself is to um, raise yourself on a pedestal from where no one in principle could topple you down. 
unless you're very awkward. That's very comprehensible, and I see that uh, there are trends to do that in Ukraine as well. But I, I think we are uh, one of the consequences of of this war is that this victimhood narrative, which was in in our history, in our, in our memory, is uh, is kind of a complemented with the warrior narrative. I, I don't want to call it like hero narrative because it's maybe too pathetic, but just the idea, as you said, that there is, should be active effort. But coming back to Europe, because the title of our conversation is Does Europe Have Courage to Oppose the New Dictatorship? And uh, we, we also discussed this yesterday with, with the Dutch colleagues, and uh, there is a Common, common feeling that this idea uh, that you should fight is lacking in today's Europe. So you, do, you, don't, find, you don't find it anymore. Uh, you, you, you rather, uh, an average European citizen rather considers freedom as a kind of commodity that he or she buys in the supermarket and complains when this commodity is not of high quality. You know? um, do you have this impression, or maybe I'm too pessimistic, because uh, we depend on Europe, we depend on America, uh, we depend on, on this feeling, that uh, on this action as a, as, a, as a common fight. And now we see the very practical consequences of the fact that this feeling is not so widespread. So Europe behaved better than I thought. You know, on, on February 24th and 25th, I thought that all our governments would lie down before Putin and say, oh, my big czar. It's not good what you're doing, but we won't protest at all. In fact, no, that's not what happened. And in a way, it's a good sign. And, um, and so Europe didn't buy the blackmail of Ukraine-Nazi. You know, when Putin said that, nobody took it seriously. Unlike what had done France in 1992 with the Croats, where they called them Ustashi, which means collabor collaborationists with the Nazi. But... Um, uh, the first year was good. I will speak maybe later of the hesitation of Emmanuel Macron, which is like, you know, oscillating. Uh, but now, you know, why are the Ukrainians uh, so worried? It's because if the Congress doesn't vote this uh, envelope of 60 billion dollars, uh, uh, there will be no takeover by Europe. Because Europe is divided. Europe uh, doesn't know exactly what she has to do. Uh, Hungary is blocking the, the process. And um, so the, the support of Europe is soft. It's a soft support. It's not an unconditional support, except for the countries which have suffered under Soviet yoke, Baltic countries, uh, um, Bulgaria, Romania, and, uh, and Poland, even if there are some uh, discrepancies. But uh, for the others, especially for the French, you know, they look at the results, and as you say, they consider the support like, like a, consumer, a consumer good. They say, okay, we have been waiting one year, they have had all the time to, to win, now it's the second year, uh, how long that will that last? And uh, we are a little tired by this war, could we shift to another subject? And uh, we, we, we act like consumers, because what characterizes a consumer? It is impatience. Consumers have no patience, you know, they want one good now, they want another commodity there, 
And if you don't find it, okay, they won't come back. They'll go to another shop. And um, I think the main uh, quality that we lack is perseverance. We don't know what it is to support a cause for five, 10, 20 years, as my generation did know. But uh, it seems that today the childish citizen of Western Europe wants immediate results, like on his cell phone. So it's a paradox that uh, you know Europe has come through the criticism of ideologies, criticism of Marxism and criticism of right-wing ideologies. But what you're saying is that there is no persistence right now. And in a, in a way, it's, it's went too far. It's went to this ideological relativism when you don't consider ideas as worth you know, f fighting for and struggling for. And it's an important thing that probably it went too much. And another thing is that, well, the, as probably always, the, the, the good things about something also produce the bad things. For example, take the welfare state of the U European countries like France and Germany. On the one hand, it's very good because it protects citizens from unemployment, from health problems, etc. But on the, other on the other hand, it reduces the level of responsibility. It tells citizens, well, the state will take care of you. You don't have to do anything. You, you will be always protected. You take your security for granted. You take your health for granted. And it, it, it develops a kind of a consumerist attitude to the idea of the nation, of the community. Yes, exactly, and it makes a citizen capricious, whimsical. You know, you have whims, one day you want this, the other day you want something different, and of course very selfish. Because if you say to the French, we have, a, I think, between 100,000 and 200,000 Ukrainian refugees add, added to uh, people from the Middle East, from uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, people say, my God, it's very costly. Why should I give uh, so much money? for the welfare state that doesn't help me so much. So there's a, a great part of selfish, selfishness and there is no awareness of the danger. You know, they think that if Putin has not sent a rocket in Paris or on Limoges, that, that means that he's not so dangerous, that uh, it's been very exaggerated. And I don't even speak of the pro-Putin camp in France, uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, La France Insoumise, the extreme left, and a few philosophers like Luc Ferry, who uh, loves Putin to an unreasonable point for whatever um, cause I don't understand. But anyway, but uh, uh, it's, it's very sad. It, it's very sad in a way. And we would need, for this, we would need a strong leader. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I cannot say that Macron is a strong leader. Because remember what he said at the beginning. Uh, this year we went to see Macron in the, at the Elysee with some friends about Armenia, to protect Armenia from, the, from uh, Azerbaijan. And at the end of the conversation, Macron said, do you realize Putin swore me that he would never invade Ukraine, that he had nothing to do with the Wagner militia, and that he was a totally peaceful man, and he lied to me. How can you understand that? Who, who would dare to do that? And I quoted Solzhenitsyn, they lie, we know they lie, they know that we know that they lie, they keep lying. This is the old Russian tradition enhanced by uh, communism, but uh, 
Russia is a, is a, is the empire of, of the lie, and, and Macron has been very naive, and more than naive, he's been complicit because in a, you, you maybe remember in 2019, uh, invited uh, Vladimir Putin in Brégançon, which is a nice residence on, on the seaside in, in the near Nice, to, uh, to discuss the European architecture of security. So, you know, you have, uh, you have ducks, hens, chickens, and so you invite the wolf, say, what would you like to, to take for, for today's lunch? Hens, chicken, or maybe you want a, a mix of them? And um, it was totally insane and, and blind. So Macron, put, it took him a year to change. And you know, the, the Russians and the Ukrainians invented um, a word which said to macronize. To macronize, he said to speak, to, to say anything, and to change shift uh, every day. But in the end, uh, Emmanuel Macron, after a strong embrace and hug to Zelensky, who was almost embarrassed by this demonstration of affection, uh, decided to help Ukraine, which is good. So now, I think he will hold to, the, to this um, backup, and he will not change his mind once, once more again. But it's been very long, and um, this, is, this is Europe. Europe oscillates from uh, indifference to complicity, and it is very sad. Maybe my last question, and I will give the floor to the audience to ask your questions. Um, I think that, uh, that that's the key question of today's conversation. Does Europe have a courage to oppose to new dictatorships? And uh, I think the reality right now is that Europe has understood the half of the truth. And the half of the truth is that, okay, Russia is evil, except for some people like Le Pen and uh, Mélenchon and some others, which are still there. But still, majority of people understand it, I hope, at least that we, we see on the public opinion polls in the European Union. But why it is half of the truth? Because the other half is that you, have to, you, you are endangered. You understand that you're endangered and you have to fight back. And this Europe, I think, doesn't, doesn't understand. It still thinks that it is stronger than Russia and uh, Russia is weak and Russia will not attack and uh, you should not do anything about it and you can still you know, have a conversation, have a dialogue, etc. Well, I think that Europe should look at Ukraine and understand that its destiny in the 21st century is precisely to be Ukraine, but on a bigger scale. What I mean, to be an endangered democracy. Because 21st century is not the end of history in Fukuyama's terms, but the end of history in, um, I don't know, fascist terms, you know. So the end of history in a sense that there are autocracies and dictatorships which actually enlarge and say, the only truth is our truth, is that you have to have vertical of power, violence, etc. So do you think that Europe will wake up to this idea and understand that it should be a Republican in an in a old sense of the word, a democratic fortress against this ocean of new dictatorships? So Europe has taken a very strong sleeping pill in 1989. Very strong, very... Uh, um, that could kill a person in good health. And uh, sometimes it has uh, moments of, uh, of uh, wake-up wake up call. Oh my God, what is it? What's happening? Uh, revolution there, um, ISIS there, here. But, and, um, and the invasion of Ukraine has acted as a wake-up call. But as you said, it's a half wake-up call. And um, 
the, the Europeans don't want any war. They want peace, quietness, uh, nice place to, to spend their holidays, retirement, early retirement pensions. As we know, we have fought a terrible battle in France this year against uh, the retirement at 64, which was a scandal for every Frenchman. How dare you, when everybody elsewhere in Europe works until 65 or 67? It was like a revolution, or like the resistance against Nazism. We saw thousands and thousands of French taking to the street and protesting to, uh, against this law, which was just a, a basic and rational law. You live longer, you work longer. But, uh, and so those small ambitions of the democratic individual, which had been very well uh, underlined by the, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, the, the democratic individual doesn't, doesn't see further than his own interests, than his own family, than his own friends. We're still there more than ever, especially when the outside world is dangerous. So Ukraine, okay, the first weeks, the first month, okay, let's go, yes, we have to help them. But now, almost two years after, there is no progress, has been a huge progress, but now the situation is blocked. Uh, is it really necessary to go further? And then the prophets of uh, bad advice are still on the, uh, on the run, you know, you still hear them. Uh, Dominique de Villepin, Hubert Védrine. Oh, you have to remember that Hubert Védrine, who was a foreign uh, uh, minister uh, with Mitterrand, said that the war in Ukraine has been caused by the aggressivity of uh, the US against Russia. And of course it doesn't, uh, it doesn't stand, this is not true. This man doesn't know his history, but anyway, as he's a foreign minister, people say, oh, he knows a lot of things, maybe we've been too bad. And this is typical of a Western attitude. We, we are unable to recognize our enemies. Putin say, I'm going to revenge myself of the, the fall of the wall in uh, 1989. Uh, the Mullahs in Iran said, we are going to destroy these uh, perverse and disgusting Western world who gives, that gives right to the gays and lesbians. Uh, Daesh and ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda say, we are going to destroy this disgusting Western world. So everybody speaks openly about their intention, and the Westerners say, oh, excuse me? No, no, you must, no, no, you've been mistaken. No, it's just the rhetoric. No, no, that's not at all what it means. And um, in France, we could have understood very early that Putin was our enemy because he, um, he tried to arise a population in sub-Saharan Africa against France. And we lost four states which fell into the hands of the Wagner militia. Burkina Faso, Mali, uh, Niger, and Centrafrique. And Macron, during that time, he didn't see anything. He was blind. My Russian friends, my good Russian friends, no, they cannot do that. No, it's impossible. And, um, and there is another reason also to the uh, Western blindness. We have a romantic view of uh, Russia. Russia, it's uh, uh, Putin, uh, Pushkin, sorry, uh, Tolstoy, Rachmaninoff, um, Shostakovich, Tchaikovsky, the, the large fields of snow, uh, ravishing blonde girls welcoming you at the airport with little flag. And this, this dates back to uh, 
this dates back to the 18th century, and the first victim of this propaganda were in fact Voltaire and Diderot. The only guy who really knew Russia very well is uh, Le Marquis de Custine, who is the equivalent for Russia of uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. My favorite book. Yes, yes, for, uh, for America. So what does say Marquis de Custine? First, he's enthusiastic and says, what is this society? It's a society of prisoners. And he writes in his, in his letters, he writes, Russia is the greatest prison on earth, and the Tsar is just one prisoner among others, but with more titles. And that's exactly what we see nowadays. <coughs> it's not very different. What Kustin also said is that uh, the biggest aristocrat in Russia is the same slave for the Tsar as the lowest uh, slave. And we see right now the situation with the Russian oligarchs who are actually nothing, who are just slaves of, of the Tsar. Maybe last, last question. What gives you hope in this gloomy situation? Well, you, you remember the, the song by the Beatles, I heard the new today, oh boy which was written in 1966. The news today is not good. We cannot deny it. But it's not desperate. I think uh, Biden will finally succeed in uh, deciding the Congress to vote the credits for Ukraine. So he has to give up a few, to give a few concessions to the Republican for the immigrants, and I think he can do that. I think the situation in Ukraine is more important than the situation of Mexican immigrants at the border, Rio Grande, um, border, even if it's important, of course. Um, but we shouldn't be worried, you know. Uh, there should be a, a kind of a automatic switch between Europe and the United States. The United States could say to Europe, this year we can't uh, give money to the Ukrainian. Can you take over? And it, it would be very easy. But in Europe we have uh, people like Orban, like the Prime Minister of Slovakia, and uh, they want to, uh, like uh, Gerd Wilders, you may, you may, I think you have talked about him yesterday, who want to block the credits and we want to give Ukraine to Russia. And um, so it's a difficult situation, but in, in your case, failure is not an option. You cannot afford to, to fail. You have to win whatever, at whatever cost. Okay, let me thank you wholeheartedly, Pascal, for this, uh, for coming, first of all, to Ukraine and uh, for this conversation. Thank you for the Volodymyr. It was very nice of you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming here. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolonko. I am chief editor of Ukraine World and president of Pen Ukraine. My guest was Pascal Bruckner, one of France's most influential philosophers. This conversation was recorded in Kyiv on December the 7th, 2023. You can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at PayPal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.